No, I think all of you out there should wait and see what we have in store for you. Perhaps some of the biggest surprises lay ahead. So sit back and enjoy. Delve into your deepest and darkest indulgences as we proudly present tonight's Creatures feature. Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, this is the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Tim Timebomb, Leone D'Antonio, Lauren and Trevor Shan, Austin Wilkin, and Rachel Tejada. Let's go! It is the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 22. We are joined by one of the most exciting creators in horror today. Visionary writer, director, and editor, Ty West. Hear tales from the sets of some of the best genre films in decades, including The Innkeepers and House of the Devil, an in-depth discussion about Ty's uniquely singular approach and process that makes his movies so immersive and terrifying. I think you'll find that you'll get inspired by what he has to say to not only go out and make your own films, but to do whatever it is you were dreaming of setting out to achieve. Now we head to the screaming room for a little Ty West Film Fest of our very own. Hey, this is Ty West. You are getting spooky with the Boo Crew. The Boo Crew dusts a fright flick off the shelf for horror homework. Do you each pick a Ty West movie? Yeah. yeah. Some of us might have picked the same Ty West movie. I have a feeling we all picked the same Ty West movie. Yeah. It's possible. <laughs> I, 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 I love every Ty West movie I've seen, but I, my favorite would be Innkeepers. Do you know the story of Madeline O'Malley? She was the woman that died here in the hotel. She hung herself after her fiancé stood her up on their wedding day. And ever since then, people have reported seeing the ghost of Madeline O'Malley roaming the hallways waiting for her lover. Some say she's even looking to take up a new one. Ooh, Ooh. I did not pick Innkeepers. I did. We did. We did. did. Wow. wow. Great. Four Innkeepers and... What's yours? The House of the Devil. Two House yeah. of the Devil. Oh, nice. We, we, we did too. watch that one, too. It was a toss-up. Yeah, those really do go hand-in-hand. Hand. Yeah, they, they do. do. They do, and for a very specific reason, too. That's right. Both, both you... directed by Ty West. No. Tell the reason. <laughs> yes, they were. <laughs> yes. <but> no. <laughs> very imp- so, get this. Ty West is shooting House of the Devil, and they stay at the Yankee Peddler Inn. What's the connection? <laughs> <laughs> the idea for innkeepers came from when they were making... Yeah, yeah it's a connection. Yeah. At the real hotel, the actual yeah. Yankee yeah. Peddler Inn. It's pretty yeah. amazing. The plot, you can read it off of Wikipedia. Claire, played by Sarah Paxson, and Luke, played by Pat Healy, are two young employees at the Yankee Peddler Inn, a once grand hotel that's about to close. Claire and Luke are the only employees working during its final weekend of operation. Claire has recently dropped out of college, and Luke, well, he runs a website chronicling the hotel's hauntings. Both are ghost hunting enthusiasts and are fascinated by the hotel's supposedly haunted history, which includes the legend of Madeline O'Malley, a bride who hung herself in the 1800s with her fiancé at the altar, whose body was supposed to be hidden in the basement by hotel owners. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 yeah, that, that movie has a great feel to it. I it does. It. Mm-hmm. Classic uh, ghost story. And like you say, uh, Tim, you like the you know practical effects. It, that's what it has. I love about that movie and House of the Devil, too. He'll let the camera link. Like, it's so engaging. Yep. Both movies, yeah. they suck you right in. They have a tone to them. All of those movies that I've seen have the similar tone. It's the stamp of a good filmmaker, a quality filmmaker that you, if you didn't know 
he directed it, you would know that he directed it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> From watching all the movies, it's kind of like riding the Haunted Mansion, right? You're in the Doom Buggy, and Ty's like controlling the Doom Buggy, and he's motioning the Doom Buggy to look at what he wants you to see, right? Yeah. yeah. He's controlling the experience for you, and it's very immersive okay. in all the stuff e- he does. And even like in Cooper's, like 20 minutes into it, not a lot has happened, but you really, you know, you really like these characters. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're yeah. the best. Yeah. Yeah. You really like them. And yeah. you don't mind that nothing's, you know, it's a slow burn, but I, you enjoy it. Totally. Yeah, you know, it's like they're very quirky characters, but they're very likable, very relatable. They could be your friends. Yeah, and then you care when shit happens to them because you're like, oh no, I like that person. (laughs) And once it does in that movie too, it doesn't let you go, which is so great. It is that slow burn and you're in it and you're just hanging out and then you're just like hanging out with your friends for it and then it's like, oh shit. And then it's just like, like dominoes falling. It also seems to have a genuineness about the way the ghost story is told. It plays out like I would imagine it would play out in real life, if you had a paranormal experience, right, the reaction to when she experiences certain things seems to be very <laughs> genuine to me. Right. Yes. Yeah, totally. It's not overblown. No. Yeah. And the thing that's great is that the things that do happen to her, she's the only one experiencing them. Yes. So there's a question of, are we inside of her head and watching her experience something that she thinks she's experiencing right. or is she actually experiencing right. it? See, that's why every time I recommend this movie to a friend, they... Love it, but they're like, oh, I thought this, this, and this. And then I'm like, oh, I thought this, this, and this, you know, and then we get into a big argument. So it's really cool that it sounds like the way he made this movie, it kind of leaves it up to, hey, man, write your own story in your own mind, you know? Yeah. What did, what did you see? But it's all well done. Great dialogue. It was fun, quirky, couple great jump scares. Yeah. Well earned, should I say, mm-hmm. uh, jump scares. The computer scene was pretty funny. That was really funny. (laughs) Sarah Paxton, she does rarely scream in the film. Ty West was going to replace her because she wasn't really a good screamer and wasn't like convincing (laughs) of the typical horror scream. But he I don't remember her, her but, the, but, the, but the computer scene that was real. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's kind of funny because I remember her from uh, Last House on the Left remake, which was she was pretty good in that movie. Oh, with yeah. Aaron Paul. Yeah, Aaron Paul. That's right. For something like this, you really got to like the characters because it's so few characters in the movie. Her and Pat true. Healy, Sarah Paxton. Pat yeah, yeah. Pat Healy, Pat Healy is, great. is so great. Yeah, he's yeah. so cool yeah. in this. That guy just sells, I mean, just his facial expressions, just you know, monotonous. You this, know, just and like, the, the, <laughs> I love the subtlety of his performance. Yes, very like, subtle. Like like his whole intent. Yeah, he's just so great. And the movie answers the question, what has Kelly McGillis been doing for the last 30 years? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, when I when I saw the credits, because I didn't recognize her. Oh, shit. We found the movie. I'm like, no way. From Top Gun. <laughs> That's so crazy. Yeah, Top Gun, Witness. Yeah, Witness. And, uh, yeah. yeah. It's been a while and, uh, since I've uh, like, seen her in uh, movies. Lena uh, Dunham. Said, Lena yeah, Dunham. Lena Dunham. Yeah. yeah. She was playing the perfect Lena Dunham character. Oh, right. <laughs> she was great. Yeah. She, she was great. <laughs> so Rachel and I saw this at South by Southwest in 2011. Oh. Where it premiered. It premiered at South by Southwest 2011. And we saw the poster. Yeah. And the poster art was so cool. Yeah. So we're going around. Yeah. And we took one. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. That's so we actually so have cool. a framed poster of Klepto. this movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're going, yeah. Because we're going because so I worked on a documentary that's premiering that same year. So we're going around putting up yeah, documentary flyers, posters, posters and flyers and stuff for our film. <laughs> and that thing is, I don't know if you ever been to South by Southwest. Oh wow. We're going around, and, you know, and the town is. I don't know if you guys have ever seen photos or anyone out there been to South by Southwest, yeah. but it's just a mess of posters. Right. People like putting their posters over other people's posters, and it's just like 
promotion, promotion, promotion. So it's cut. Yeah, that's the one. That's the one. Yeah. yeah. That's, a, that's a great poster. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. That's so good. Like a fully illustrated poster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. The, the tagline. What's the tagline? A ghost story for the minimum wage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So that's all we knew. We were like, what is this? Mm-hmm. So we went and checked it out. And it was just not knowing anything going in. Didn't know who Ty was. May have known about Cabin Fever 2 at the time. That's pretty great. Yeah, yeah that's cool. Blown away. Yeah. It's got the yeah, that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't even notice that. That's <laughs> so awesome. many elements to it. It's so well put yeah. together. When I met you guys, you guys told me about this movie. And it was so funny because this came right after Trevor and Lauren told me about House of the Devil. So it's like I got oh, the nice. back-to-back Ty West yeah. thing going on. And I'm like, man, I love both these movies. They're like in my top 10, I think, of favorites of all time. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah, yeah. they're amazing. Wait, Leo's got glasses. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, just noticed that? I just noticed that. Yeah. It's funny. I was noticing throughout the... Uh, I lost my vision. Oh, man. It's been a night at the Yankee Peddler. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Peddler by some Yankee. <laughs> I don't want to know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> You have to forgive me, Samantha, because I've not been completely honest. We're from the desert, you know. You see, we we actually don't have a child. They lied to you. I know. Okay, I know you're right. But it's four hundred dollars. This equals first month's rent and then some, and all I have to do is sit inside and watch TV. This is huge. This one night changes everything for me. Here we go. Talk to me, Lord. Talk to me. House of the Devil, released April 25th, 2009 at Tribeca. Limited theatrical run on October 30th, made for $900,000, written and directed by Ty West. Starring Jocelyn Donahue from Insidious Chapter 2. Tom Noonan, you might know him from Monster Squad. And Mary Warnoff, known for working with Andy Warhol and a lot of Roger Corman projects. It kind of uses a satanic panic of the 80s as a backdrop down on her luck college student accepts the babysitter job paying an insane amount of money only to be told when she gets to the creepy house from whence the ad came there are no children to babysit dun 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 what? creepy ass fuck <laughs> <laughs> I think you should tell your story about your babysitter experience when you were little because this makes me think of this movie and it was <laughs> fucked up Whoa. that was a little fucked up there's actually a scene in the movie where she finds the babysitter job on one of those bulletin boards and you pull the little yeah. piece of paper off the <laughs> yeah. yeah and that used to be how people would find babysitters including right. my parents. So when I was young, my parents would just go to the convenience store, the bulletin board, and grab whatever babysitter thing. The first time they would meet the babysitter would be the time that the babysitter would come to the house to watch us. So one particular babysitter, and I'll never forget it, came over and I wasn't feeling well that night. I must have been, I don't know, maybe six. And she started saying I was possessed by Satan. What? Whoa. So she filled the tub and <gasps> like blessed the water in the tub and started shoving my head in the tub. And she was crying and screaming and yelling all this stuff about the demons that are taking me over. I was freaking out. And my uh, sister was screaming and watching this. You know, the night went on after that. And I was like, that was really weird. I just remember feeling that. I've carried it with me ever since. And I remember waking up in the morning, I'd get up early, watch cartoons, and my parents would wake up and, so how was the babysitter? And I remember telling them. I remember kind of a lukewarm reaction. Like, it wasn't like, (laughs) I don't know, different time, I don't know. What if you were possessed? 
What they hired her to exactly. <laughs> could be. <laughs> that, I have it figured out. That's why they were surprised. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, good. So she did what we asked. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> That's it. That was my reaction. Wow. All these years. <laughs> Such a simple. That wasn't child abuse. That was an exorcism. <laughs> Your parents are like, we're going to pretend to go out. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll call her a babysitter. Right. She'll take care of it. That's what they said on the bulletin board. Is your child possessed? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think this is House of the Devil, one of the best horror films in the past 20 years, period. Recreating that era of the 80s is a period piece it did so well that was actually the first time i'd actually seen that done and done so well perfect i mean it's kind of like what stranger things has done now before stranger things got to it really it just did it so well the music is great one of the most intense jump scares i think of all time that i've ever seen it shocked the shit out of me came out of nowhere beginning so shocking oh my god right it's oh my god (laughs) and then it's like you're on the it puts you on the edge for the rest the movie yeah. you're just like what's gonna now what right yeah. because as you've talked about suspense yeah right you know something that right. the character doesn't know yeah. well this movie is full of that yeah. and that yeah. scene yeah. really kicks it off and that's so early in the movie that you're riding the rest of this movie with this feeling this uneasy feeling and it comes with you after you finish the movie I remember this clear as day when Lauren and I watched the movie we bought it on DVD or whatever after the movie we both like could not get up we were afraid to go down the hall to the bathroom, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. And it's the kind of movie you think about for days after when you're walking around your house in the dark and not many movies do that. And this really had a, an effect like that. So it was shot on 16 millimeter film, which was very popular back in the 80s. Just had this very retro stylistic look. We just talked about the film that Samantha's watching on TV was Night of the Living Dead, which is awesome. And I guess they used it because it's in the public domain. So yeah. oh, wow. it was true. cheap it to was use free. it. It was free. <laughs> you can't get any cheaper Nothing than, cheaper than free. Uh, it's late, guys. <laughs> um, we shot over 18 days. There's a phone scene where usually, like, when you see a movie, there's always, like, a five, yeah, five, 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 five number. Whatever, yeah. But in this movie, there's, like, an actual number, and that's kind of weird. I wonder whose number it I is. I know. Let's oh. call it. Let's call it. It was a really good movie. It was so solid. I just really cared about what happened to the main character and where is this going and like Trevor said you feel super uneasy about it because you don't know where it's gonna go and it can go anywhere and Ty West is a genius. In this movie he understands the language of cinema so well he'll give you all the indicators to lead you to a conclusion and then steer you away from it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well said. So that you're like oh well that's the door like the language tells me that I know what's behind that door and then he won't show you what's behind that door. And then you forget that you don't know what's behind that door because you think you know what's behind that door. Right. And then when you find out what's behind the door, it fucks you up. Yeah, and you see a lot of fucking doors. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she's exploring the house like three or four times. She yeah. goes exploring the house and you don't yeah. know. And I'm like, fucking stay put. I know. <laughs> Just sit on yeah. the couch, yeah. watch the TV. Nothing will happen. Don't. Yeah. You're going to make fucking bank. Just sit there. Yeah. And just, it's such a great movie, Night of the Living Dead. Just watch it. Yeah. 
<laughs> but no. But her pizza almost showed up with extra anchovies. Uh, when I was a kid, I remember you said that was always an urban myth. If you asked for extra anchovies, you'd get shrooms on your pizza uh, or something, right? They delivered that. Is that what you're thinking? No, no, no. Patrick Dempsey. <laughs> what? Yes. Patrick Dempsey? What does it, he have to do with this? It was a uh, nod lo- to... Loverboy, was it? Yes, Loverboy. <clears throat> oh. Oh, was it a same kind of thing, though? Oh, like you get something work... extra on yeah, your pizza? Sex. What, you get sex on <laughs> yeah. your pizza? On the so pizza? Women... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> women, 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 I don't want sex on my pizza. <laughs> <laughs> women would call and be like, extra anchovies, and he'd have to come over and satisfy the women. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Look it up. Oh, so that's why he's like, you want an extra anchovy? Right, right, he's right. like all like dirty pervy. Yep. <laughs> dirty pervy. <laughs> that was my stage name. <laughs> <laughs> this movie was so perfectly 80s, I kept forgetting that it wasn't made in the 80s. Right. Yes. And I kept like afterwards, I looked up the main actor to see what she's doing now. 30 years later. That's crazy. <laughs> I thought she'd be older because it was like, what, what's she been doing? Like, I haven't seen her in any movies since the 80s. It reminds me a lot of those B movies that used to be shown in uh, Macabre Theater, Elvira's. Like, a lot of those movies that kind of had that tone. It looked just like it. You know, he did a really great job Headset designers and uh, wardrobe makeup people, yeah. all that. Oh, I yeah. mean, down yeah. to the hairstyles, yeah. the jeans, to the pizza yeah. parlor. I mean, everything. Her water 80s. cups. The water cups. Water cups. Yeah, even, yeah. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. even the water cup. And the titles. Yeah. Yes. Right? Yeah. The yellow titles yeah. and zooms. Yeah. Freeze frames. Zoom lenses. Yeah, freeze frames. All these great things. Yeah, that's why, just like you, man, first time I saw it, I was confused. I'm like, is this a new movie or? <laughs> it's too good. Yeah, it's, it's well done. Very well done. No, that would be what Tim would call full trad, I believe. Yeah, they did a damn good job at it. Go get it. House of the Devil. Innkeepers. Support Ty West because his shit rules. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Woohoo. You mustn't go down into the basement. Under a blanket of blue. The Boo Crew Podcast. Stephen King. Author of Carrie said, Evil Dead is the most ferociously original horror film of the year. Evil Dead from New Line Cinema. Starts tomorrow at these theaters. Check newspapers for times. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew in the Speakeasy studio is one of the most talented and truly exciting writers and directors in not just the horror genre, but in film today. He made a massive impact with his feature-length debut, The Roost, in 2005, went on to do projects such as Trigger Man, Absolute Masterpieces, The House of the Devil, The Innkeepers, The Sacrament, 2016's Western in a Valley of Violence, starring Ethan Hawke and John Travolta, made contributions to the anthology films VHS and the ABCs of Death. The TV shows Scream, South of Hell, and The Exorcist, to name a few, have all benefited from his work. He is a true visionary that has redefined horror's path for over a decade, and audiences cannot wait to see what he has up next. His films are the rare gift of being as much about the journey as they are the destination. A great honor to welcome Mr. Ty West. Thank you. That was, um, that was quite the intro. <laughs> it was very heartfelt. We love you. I we appreciate you. that. So we'll start this off as we always do at the beginning. When did you fall in love with the horror genre? You know, I think I always had a thing for what you weren't supposed to like. So um, I grew up kind of in the, not the middle of nowhere, but not a particularly interesting suburban area. The only thing we really had that resembled, I guess, culture maybe would be... Um, 
like a video store. I was at the video store all the time. And there was the section of the video. There was two sections of the video store you weren't supposed to go into. One was horror and one was porn. <laughs> and, uh, and they were right next to each other. And so uh, I would always kind of go into the horror section and I loved the artwork on the box covers and they rarely lived up to what the movies were. But I was always like, well, I'm not supposed to see this. What's going to happen to me if I do? And then I would see it and nothing would happen to me. And I go, well, maybe I didn't get to see the scariest one. So I would then push it to the next level. And I constantly was looking for one that, you know, every time I got sort of a visceral reaction out of the movies, I thought, wow, that's a really unique experience to be afraid of something that I know is fake. And so it just became an interesting, I don't know, I guess like taboo thing I wasn't supposed to be interested in. And I, I tend to gravitate towards that. Right. It became an obsession. It was always a matter of like, well, what's the scariest one? What's scarier than this one? What's scarier than that one? And then every once in a while, you'd see one that would kind of like put you back on your heels a little bit because it'd be a little too scary. Um, <laughs> what did you find scary? Like what titles? Like I was an only child and my parents had a babysitter and they, and they would get for me. And my parents didn't really care what I was watching. I don't think they paid attention, so I just sort of rented whatever I wanted. And I remember that the babysitters would like see movies at my house that they weren't allowed to see. <laughs> and so <laughs> I, I think like it started movie. with like Nightmare on Elm Street was the first one that sort of got me a little bit. And it was mostly the girl on the ceiling more oh, than anything else yeah, in the movie. Yeah, that's, that's a brutal scene, man. And then Zelda from Pet Cemetery oh, yeah, yeah. really oh, did yeah, a number yeah. on me. And then the little girls in The Shining. And and those oh, yeah. those three things were the the ones that actually sort of like I didn't really enjoy it as much. Like those three things bothered me a little bit. <laughs> yeah. That again made me interested in more. And then, you know, it continued from there. It wasn't one specific thing. It wasn't like, oh well, I'm only afraid of ghosts or I'm only afraid of home invasion. It was just it was something about the cinema within some of the movies. And so like right. the two little girls in the shining is just like it's not that two little girls are that scary of a thing. It's something about the symmetrical nature of them, the way that they're talking slightly in sync, not in sync. I mean, it's like Kubrick's genius and he did something really scary there. You know, Room 237 was scary as well and the rest of the movie is scary, but there was something about those two little girls that was um, like burnt into my retinas. And <laughs> Zelda from Pet Cemetery did that to me as well. That one sequence in Nightmare on Elm Street also did that. And see, so that, that sequence there had echoes of uh, The Exorcist for me. Yeah, and I didn't see The Exorcist until I was, I say older, like 13. Um, <laughs> but then, yeah, The Exorcist was pretty scary also. I'm trying to remember, but there, if there wasn't really a part in The Exorcist that was specifically as traumatizing to me, but the movie on a whole had the impact. You once had said that it's not hard to make a movie. It's just really easy not to, which I loved. <laughs> you wrote and directed The Roost when you were only 25. Describe how you got to that point. I was actually 22. It just oh, wow. took that long to come out. But um, <laughs> that quote you're attributing to me, which is accurate, I would say is it's similar to like exercise. It's not that hard to go for a couple mile run, but like, oh, it's really easy not to, you know, <laughs> and if you, if you don't do it for a while, it's harder to continue doing it. With movies for me, like I always had a sort of a do it yourself way of thinking about them. And so I always thought if I could do everything myself, I could at least get it done. I don't know how good it would be, but I could do it. And so I was very fortunate that I went to film school in New York City and uh, I had a teacher there named Kelly Wright. Card. Kelly Record went on to be a really great, I mean, she was a great filmmaker then, but she went on to have a bunch of laudable indie films in the last several years. But at the time, she knew a guy who had produced her movie called Larry Fessenden. I had seen his movie Habit, which was this little indie vampire movie that I really liked. And so she introduced me to him and we got along and he liked the short films that I made over the years. And when I was done film school, he said, well, what are you going to do now? And I said, well, I don't know, move to LA, write a script, whatever you're supposed to do. This was in New York City. And he said, well, 
if the only thing stopping you from making a movie was money, what if I gave you a little bit of money? Could you just go do it? And I just lied and said yes. <laughs> and, um, and, I, and I was like, yeah, I have a script. I just, I need to, you know, polish it up over the weekend, which I didn't have a script. But I remember very distinctly, there was, you know, certain moments in your life that you remember like that. And I remember walking out of his office and calling a friend of mine and saying, I think I just got a movie financed. I have to go home and write it by Monday. And I, and I, but I did. I went home and wrote it by Monday. And then he was like, all right, well, and this was in like June. He was like, let's see if we can get it made. And then in October, we were making it. I moved home from New York City to my, my family lives kind of outside of Philadelphia. And so I moved back there. I started calling anyone I knew where I could get favors. And I, I knew one that knew was very connected with a lot of people who had a lot of property. And so I, of course, called in every favor on her, which I think she never imagined was going to happen. And I was like, hey, remember when you said you could call me anytime? Here, I'm calling you now. And I found a great place. And then like M. Night Shyamalan was going to shoot the village there. So we kind of lost that location. And I thought I was doomed. And then I found another place that ended up being where we were going to shoot. And then a friend of mine was moving. Her whole family was moving and they happened to live like five miles from there and they were moving and their house was empty. So they let us use their house. So then we, everyone stayed on air mattresses in the house <laughs> for free about five miles from where we shot it. And then I sort of, I wrote and directed, edited and produced with every, a lot of the people I still work with today. And we shot it in 13 days. It was really just sort of like, well, there's a guy that's going to give me 50 grand to make a movie and I don't want to miss this opportunity. So I'll just do whatever it takes. And I don't know how good it'll be, but I, I know I can at least do it. And so that's always been my attitude is that it's hard to know how well it will turn out or how talented you are or anything like that. But I do think of, I have a work ethic that um, I don't have that much quit in me. So I, so I just <laughs> thought I could probably get it done. And I, I, I kind of came up in a very sort of like do it yourself. I was listening to punk rock music and I was in a band and it was things like that where everything was just sort of like, well, you screen print the t-shirts yourself and you make, you find the cheap place to make stickers. And you like, I, I, that was the way I approached movies was the same way I approached having sort of nothing in a band also. And so it didn't really scare me to take on the responsibility of it all. It just seemed like, well, this is what I say I want to do. Now it's time to do it. As early as the roost, your style that you still have now and you've just built upon it is still intact. It's a very good intro to what you do. Your films are very rich in character development and it causes a real shock to the system once those characters are put into peril. This incredibly immersive style with nods to great cinema of the past. Can you talk a bit about developing that style and your approach in general? I know what you're talking about, but it's a little bit like hearing your voice on tape, you know? Sure. So it's like, it's hard for me to look at it. And I, I know what people mean when they say slow burn. I know what people mean when they talk about the style that I have, but it's not necessarily obvious for me to recognize it in the same way. I just have a way of, I come to movies first, I think visually, I think of like the cinema as well as the semantics. When I think of the cinema aspect of filmmaking, camera direction is a big part of it for me and orienting the audience in the space and sort of manipulating where they look is a lot of how my brain first thinks about. So I, whatever scene I'm doing, I have whatever reasons I have for making that scene. But the way I approach it is like, well, how, what is this about to me, regardless of what happens in the scene? Like, what is it about to me? And what do I want people to be looking at? And so most of my choices are just sort of kind of retrofitted to like, they like reverse engineer to get you to hopefully do what I want to do. Like, for instance, like if it takes a really long time for someone to walk down a hallway, then you think when they go in the room, something's going to happen. But if nothing happens in the room and they come back out in the hallway, now you're like, well, it's definitely going to happen in the hallway. <laughs> in the hallway <laughs> by the time you're in the third room, you're like, I actually don't know what's going to happen anymore. And I think that as audience audiences, uh, myself included, are pretty like hip to tricks and they're pretty hip to this kind of a postmodern audience uh, for the past, I don't know, 10, 15 years or so, where there's like almost like not cliches, that's not fair, but there's almost like trends that happen within movies and it's very mm -hmm. easy to pick up on them if you're a cinephile. And so I'm always trying to figure out how to wait to make you think it's that and then not make it that. And so what that 
it's doing to say the average audience, I have no idea. But for someone like me that watches a lot of movies, I'm trying to find ways that would keep it alive and interesting for me. Because you write, direct, and edit. I mean, those are like the three steps of filmmaking, mm-hmm. which very few people do all three. It is true that not that many people do it. To me, it's just, that's all oh, filmmaking. Yeah. You have, can you sometimes at the last minute tell the story through the edit? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like change the story. It's, like, it's you write very it, much like the last rewrite. It. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it very much is like that. It's so for me, like I have, I have an idea for a movie and I write the script so that way I could maybe make that movie and people could understand what the hell I'm talking about. And then if people like that, then I got to figure out how to like photograph that and make that work to where it delivers on whatever idea that I originally had. But I also have to shoot it in a way that's like economical because I've rarely had very much money to do things. And also I don't shoot that much coverage because I'm shooting everything with a plan of it's going to go together like this. But then I always leave myself like, well, what if I'm wrong? Like I got that one shot just in right. case. But then like Timmy was saying, like if I'm in post, I'm like, you know, this didn't really turn out the way I wanted it to. Or I just have a better idea now. Or you know what? The tone with some of the music changed the vibe so much that I think that this should be more like this. There's definitely an element of like kind of rewriting the movie right. in the edit and the sound design as well because sound is a pretty big part of my movie. Like Sacrament, I love that film. Thank you. And you wrote it and you directed it and edited How much of that was planned? I mean, was some of it ad-lib or did you do some stuff on the fly? Or Very little of it was ad-libbed actually. The plan was oh. to just... It felt so natural though. You know? Yeah, the funny thing is that when I made that movie, I cast everyone in that movie I knew and I knew them well. <laughs> so I knew it because I was like, we'll be able to ad-lib the whole movie <laughs> and we didn't do any of that. And so huh. I, I wrote a script and the script is very much what we shot. It was just going to be a guide. And then when we got there, I mean, there's a little bits here and there, but for the most part, like Joe Swanberg, who's in it, he's a friend of mine and a filmmaker. He was playing the cameraman and I was like, well, that's great because he can shoot some of it. Right. And so I can shoot some stuff and he can shoot stuff at the same time. And so it was a very weird movie to make. And it was a very, very difficult movie to edit because that kind of movie you're also dealing with. One, that movie was like all about realism, which yeah. is a real drag yeah. because it's yeah. just like, it's super unpleasant. Like it's just a downer of a movie and like on purpose, <laughs> but it's like six months of working on that and you're pretty worn out, especially yeah. like it all sounds like you're going to do this thing. And then when you're there and there's these sort of like 75 year old extras like dying and foaming at the mouth, um. it takes on a, and they're all, of course having a great time because they're happy to be in a movie but it just takes on a pretty heavy tone after a while and then when you're editing that movie you have to adhere to this technical element of making sure the audience believes the lie that the movie's this documentary thing so it was challenging yeah, I think I believe the lie. <laughs> that that yeah. one scene, though, when uh, they're hiding under the body and the foam's yeah. on his face, that yeah. was hardcore. I just thought I just remember that scene. Yeah, and we um, did that in one shot, which was... Um, and the interview scene was intense. That was... That, that was like, how many takes... I mean, what was that? That seemed so natural. That, intense. I was a, a great, great, great fortune to have found Gene Jones to play right. that part. Because that was his first day of filming, and that was a nine and a half page day... It may have been more. It may have been like an 11 page day. It was a day that no one was thrilled about shooting because it was more than (laughs) typically you want to shoot in a day. And it had like 150 extras and it is the crux of the movie. Yeah. And it's a night shoot. It just had everything going against it. And so we set up for it and I had met Gene and we had talked about it and we didn't really rehearse it. We kind of ran it a few times in the hotel and then we set up to shoot it and we shot his side first and we started shooting and he just did this amazing like 12 minute take and didn't drop a line and it was like oh well we're turning around we're almost done a lot of that was like one one take yeah I mean it, he just crushed it like it yeah. was like we put him up there 
And I said, all right, Gene, you're going to come out. Everyone's going to go crazy. They're going to cheer. You're going to come here. Everyone's going to quiet down. And then AJ is going to start talking to you. And, you know, let's see how it goes. And let's, you know, when the wheels fall off, we'll stop and we'll figure it out. And then and we'll, we'll take it from there. And he was like, all right. And so he came out and it just was like awesome on take one. Yeah. And then like we might have done one more just to do it. And then we just turned around, and shot the other side and then shot the people and we finished early. It was a great moment because it was the moment that everyone, we were all pretty into the movie we were making, but it was the moment that everyone went like, oh, yeah, this might work. This might be really great. And that's a total credit to he Gene. He nailed it, man. And he got, because you know, I'm from the Bay Area, right? So, like, I was 12 years old when that shit went down with Jim Jones. Yeah. Which yeah. is loosely, sure, yeah. I mean, inspired by yeah. it or whatever. But you did your own thing. It wasn't exactly like that. Yeah. But I brought it like a lot of memories back, man, because that was crazy. I never forget when they were finding out how many bodies there were, right? There was scrolling on the screen we were reading them because a lot of them from the bay area yeah it was fucked up yeah from wow. ukiah and all that it's yeah. a it's a story i've always been really fascinated with because it's you know people know the drink the kool-aid part of it and it's become sort of pop culture which is weird in its own right but it's it's not a story that people really know that well because as soon as something is a cult and as soon as it ends the way it ends it's it becomes sort of like this like oh this terrible thing that happened which it is but the actual story of it is like very dense and really interesting and and what brought people to it and where it went wrong is like it's very complicated and it's rarely talked about how complicated it is and and how it went down for everybody and and you think like well i would never be a person that would do it but it's like but you would you know it's like you think you wouldn't but like there's no way those 900 people thought they would do that either and so that's what's so interesting i've always found really fascinating about the people's temple story is that it's like to look at it from the outside and think well i would never be one of those people And it's like there's no way they thought that either so you kind of have to, I always looked at that story of like, well, what if you were one of those people and what would make you there and what would be the, and um, so I've always been really fascinated with it. And I was always fascinated with like the role that the people had in it, the role that Tim Jones had in it, the yeah. role that the media had. In it. It's just, a, it's a, it's a really dark, but interesting part of American history. Yeah. And it's like a recover like there were sober people and the original Jim Jones was like, he was an AA guy. Yeah. First. I mean, a lot of people, when they first went there, it helped them. And then there's yeah, yeah. this kind of like socialist aspect to it. And then there's all the, it's just, it's a very like the fact that he turned the church into a place that people could go and homeless people and people back from the war, like politicians were on his side. It's just very dense. Where'd you film that at? In Savannah, Georgia. Right. You know, for anyone out there, it's a, it's a very interesting story to read deeply. But I mean, it's incredibly tragic. It's just a fascinating part of the, the coming out the 1960s is an odd time in America and um, for me that's a something I've always remembered House of the Devil mm-hmm. probably one of my favorite films of all time oh. <laughs> <laughs> I seriously love it <laughs> writing that script I remember you know growing up in, in the 80s and I remember the satanic panic yeah. and being afraid to play Dungeons and Dragons and back masking <laughs> on Aussie yeah. albums talk about coming up with that script and coming up with that idea I wrote that right after the roost and I was supposed to make it right after the roost and then like many things it just didn't happen and it, it was sitting on a shelf and then it, all of a sudden someone called and said we have the money to make it and I I was like, no, you don't. And then they really did. And I was like, oh, well, all right, let me let me think about it some more if I want to do it, because it's just, it's old because it was very much. I mean, it's a very sort of simple story. And I wrote it right out of college. So it's like not surprising that it's about like someone right out of college who doesn't have any money. That doesn't know what to do. <laughs> so it was like I just made the babysitter movie out of what was happening to yeah. me, like right at right after the roost. And because, uh, you know, you make the, the roost went well for me, but. For all intents and purposes, like when it was done, nothing happens. Like you're kind of like, I did it. And then you're like, I mean, I worked at the mall. So did I just you, like went back to work. you have some of the characters like Mary Warnov? Yeah. Mary Warnov is someone I'd always, a tremendous fan of and I'd always want to work with. And uh, she had said no to me 
previously on something and she because she, she wasn't really acting that much anymore because she's like punk rock royalty 100% she was rock roll high school 100% I know you yeah. love and uh, she was in Suicide Tennessee's video uh, yep oh she oh, was wow. yeah, 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 yeah. Mike Mears mom oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. all I wanted was a Pepsi yeah yeah that yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah that's right and yeah. she was in Chelsea Girls uh, yeah. Andy Warhol yeah and she was a, oh you know what she was in one of my favorite Eating Raul great movie oh yeah. she yeah, Raul? she's fantastic yeah. she's um, incredible no, Mary Warnoff is amazing. And I, I had been such a big fan from everything that you just described, um, the sort of Corman era movies and working with Paul Bartel. I just, I love what they were doing. And then, yes, she was like in the original factory group of people with yeah. Warhol. So she's an unbelievably interesting person and a very and interesting. She, she's like a tall presence, right? She's like. She's so intense. She's intense. Like she's, she's so intense and she's a great artist in her own right. And just one of the coolest people I've ever met. So I wanted her so desperately to play this role. She had turned me down before and her agent, like kind of was like she didn't really do anymore and I had called her agent on that movie and like I gave this whole pitch of why, while they were wrong about what they think <laughs> and she was like yeah well she's not gonna do it so then anyway I called her back on House of the Devil and was like it's me again and the agent was like you know what I'm just gonna give you Mary's number call her like see what happens and so she did and I called her and Mary has this really this I say this very lovingly because I, I, I think so highly of her she has this very standoffish presence that I think she's I, maybe she's aware of it, maybe she's not but she's like hello what do you want like she, has that, <laughs> she has that kind of energy uh, but it's great like I really like that kind of energy and so I was like I have this thing want to send it to you and she was like I don't want to do it and I was like but just read it because maybe you will you probably won't but maybe you will and then I, at least give me a shot <laughs> Yeah. and so she read it and I was like okay and I called her back and was like can we talk about it? And she was like, fine. And I was like, <laughs> and I was like well, like, did you like it? Because if you don't like it, there's no point, but whatever. And she's like, it's fine. And so I was like, okay. So I went over to her house, which was a, like a checklist experience. For yeah, me. Like, exactly. Was really, what's like, what's her house like? It's really cool. I don't know how to explain where it is. It's in this really kind of like surprising part of Los Angeles. You would never know it's there. And then when you're there, it's like her, she, everything is painted. Like her paintings are everywhere. Um, like that she's in the midst of working on and the floors are painted bright colors and the walls are paper. It's, it's great. Like, it's just, it's like a true artist lives yeah, there. And you know, great. as soon as you walk <laughs> nice. in and she had these big dogs at the time and she was great. And maybe she still does. And so, um, anyway, we sat down and we talked a lot about art. And I think, cause a lot of times when you make horror movies, I think that because it's a lowest common denominator thing, or because growing up the video store was right next to porn, it's like, <laughs> it's not always associated with like high art necessarily, or people of great quality. And I don't know how, even if, Maybe there aren't people, but I think you're always kind of trying to overcome that if you're trying to do something that's a little bit, let's say, above averagely cinematic. So we just started talking and she was awesome and she totally got it. And we were ready and she was like, all right, I'll do your movie. And she did the movie and she was amazing. From the first moment yeah, she, she came on screen, she's, it was yeah. just like... She's incredible. It was everything I wanted. Yeah, yeah. Like the first thing we ever shot with her is the scene. It's her first scene that she's in the movie when she walks out and sits on the couch with her. And she did that whole scene and it was just like, it was everything I wanted it to be. And we got along great. And, and we, you know, we've sent, I haven't talked to her in a little while, but I've been to a few of her art shows and she's just such a special person and and so um so yeah that was really i mean that was awesome to get to work with her i, I would love to do it again the house was any of that rebuilt on a soundstage or was that all filmed right on location no so at the time there was a, a tax incentive in connecticut so filmmaking was on sale in connecticut so part of the way we got the movie made is that we would shoot in connecticut we just found a house that really had nothing 
in any way relatable to the script in any capacity. It was just like kind of cool looking from the outside. We spent all of the money we had basically turning the house into a different house on the inside and making it this sort of age. I mean, it had that great staircase and it looked cool on the outside and it was like not really in the middle of nowhere. It's kind of on a, I mean, it's a little bit, but it was on a, not a main road, but it's like not what you think it would be from what the movie is. What, was the cemetery there? Not too far away. Okay. But it's not okay. right across the street. Right, right, right. Um, I was really, really, really specific about what I wanted with that movie. And I was at a time where I was like, this movie is going to be exactly as I want it to be, or I'm never doing this again. And so that was just where I was in my headspace. And so, um, cause I had come off a tough experience. And so thankfully like Jade Healy, the production designer is so awesome and she nailed it. And, but I remember from the jump, I was like, remember those Coke cups? We need those Coke cups. And within five minutes she had found them on eBay and she's like, what's next? And I was like, Oh, this is going to be great. And so, (laughs) so, you know, we just turned the house into what it, what we turned it into. And the majority, I mean, most of the movie is shot in that house, but yeah, it's just, I don't know. It's a house that we just sort of found and was like, "Eh, maybe it'll work. And then it was like, well, if we spend like 20 grand, I bet we could make it better. And then we did. And then Jade is just so talented. She made it look like the house that you think it looks like. Right. Right. When Greta Gerwig. Mm -hmm dies yeah that's unexpected yeah yeah Yeah. terrifying (laughs) did you get any like flack for the were people like that's a little too scary that's an intense but i always remember that was always the plan for me the plan was always to like build this movie around the movie's called house of the devil so something's gonna go down it's just a matter of when is it gonna go when's that shoe gonna drop to me it was always like well the friend leaves and she gets killed and then you know all the walls are closing and around the main girl and then i'm gonna make you sit and watch or watch tv (laughs) <laughs> and you're going to have to wait until you know what's coming because uh, not a living dead yeah because you as the audience know <laughs> right. what's happening but she doesn't and yeah. so but I do remember a friend of mine actually one of the sort of notes he gave me on the script was like no nah, no nah, don't kill her she should come back later and say and I was like again going back to the like no this movie's going to be exactly the way I want it to be or else I just went I think you're I don't know they're wrong maybe that would have been a great movie if she came back but I was like you're wrong I'm going all in with my chips on this I think it's going to work and I think it's going to work great because it's going to come out of nowhere and it's going to change the movie and everything from that point on is going to be a totally different movie than the movie you were in before and you're going to feel completely unsafe. Yeah, Yeah. you really do. That was the one. Talk about subverting expectations. Yeah, I mean, that's what you expect that she's going to come back and save her or something like that's the formula. Yeah. So the fact that she dies so quickly, so brutally. Yeah, Yeah. I wanted to make it just so matter of fact also. Like it was just a, it was just (laughs) like, well, that's done. Even the way she's like, oh, I thought I was going to die. Yeah, right. And you're you're like, woo. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, that's a good, that's a good, Gag. Yeah, pizza yeah. got a great effect too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It turned out well. Yeah, I mean, it'll be. I haven't seen Greta in, in several years, but uh, she's doing quite well. But um, <laughs> yeah. I the last time I saw her, she was like, "Dude, I still like get stopped on the street," and they're like, "House the devil." <laughs> <laughs> So I'm glad I could add to her sort of oeuvre of there's but, but she's, the a, she's directing now though yeah, yeah. she made Lady Bird which is yeah, great the, the, she's yeah. Yeah. there's another technique that you use in that movie and you've used it in uh, Innkeepers and some other stuff too it's super unsettling like leaving a camera in a dark room like someone walks in the room scopes out the room closes the door and you're left alone with the camera in the dark room and it just hangs for a little bit. Yeah. I love that. Is that something you developed on your own? Something you came up with or something that you hearken back to something you saw once? I don't know. I think it's, um, it's so effective. I'm, I'm really just sort of feeling it out. Yeah. Like it's hard to explain because it's, I don't know. It's just sort of like whatever the thing is that I do that I, I sort of know that I'm doing, but not really having made a lot of things with no money. You have to always try to figure out how to be creative with less. And so for me, like, okay, well, we don't have special effects and we don't have, like, let's say, movie stars, but we can find really talented, interesting people. 
and we could use sound or we could play with the frame itself. And what could we do with like elements of cinema that kind of take the movie to a different level, hopefully, maybe like artistically, um, to get you to not think about how we had five bucks to make this movie. Because mm-hmm. it's not a problem to have not a lot of make movies, like unless you need it. And you don't always need it because you can just be creative with less. And so for me, it was always like walking out of the frame and walking back into frame is just sort of like, wait, why did that happen? And then that kind of gets your brain going like, did I miss something? Am I supposed to? And then you start engaging with the movie in a way that's like more active rather than just passively sitting back and like, I don't know, letting the movie just sort of float by and so to to your point of like leaving a camera in a room it's like wait why did it do that the actor left the room we're supposed to leave the room also it's sort of like maybe there's a very specific reason or maybe it's just to sort of like throw your timing off you know but whatever it is it's 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 ultimately about manipulating the audience to get them to be in a place where i can divert their attention however i want yeah that's cool (laughs) one thing i dug too uh house of devils uh it felt old i think it was like 16 millimeter it was yeah it felt felt like that i love that look yeah it's not only that but where you can like see the grain you know mm -hmm. yeah the whole i mean the whole movie itself there's only like one other movie that comes to mind made post 2000 that has that real authenticity of the 80s which i i think of uh let the right one in Mm -hmm. but house of the devil though is like it's got that look it's it's the wardrobe it's the feathered hair yeah you know it's it's every Thing, man, it's, it, it, like it, it's like living it again. Yeah, we worked super hard on it. it. Like, it was, yeah. What's the it pluses great. of sixteen millimeter? Because I've shot like videos in sixteen millimeter. Mm-hmm. It's you know, actually, slow. there's there's pluses and there's negatives. Probably the right? DP of House of the Devil, I think, shot the Salvation video. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> really? I'm pretty uh, sure. The yeah, world that was sixteen millimeter. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> was That's the color cool. palette muted a, a little bit or something? Or shifted? No, not really. I think I remember telling Jade in the beginning. I was like, okay, it's eighties, but it's like the brown 80s ah, yes. <laughs> so it was like everything was like production size wise was, was pretty muted i wanted it to okay. seem like the 80s we grew up in not the one that's like video killed the radio star 80s right, right. Mm. are you going to go back to 16 or 35 millimeter innkeepers is 35 i think it right? was 35 valley violence was 35 I, yeah. I, I have a movie i want to make i think next year we'll see and if, if so i would like to shoot it on 35 cool. oh, um, you know or 16 i mean 16 they're both great i prefer both of them over digital video and it's a different process and it's a process I enjoy more it's a little bit more I don't know it's not fair to say respectful process but it's like everyone kind of knows when you turn the camera on you're spending money right. and everyone right. kind of yeah. knows you're you're trying something a little it's they're they're technically better formats so you you're going okay if we're going to make this and it's a visual medium that's why I like when there's a movie that's shot on 70 millimeter it's like okay if you're a big giant hollywood movie and you have all this money and you're choosing not to shoot on the very best medium and it's a visual media it's like i don't understand so so i will always sort of try seen a a love witch that is a cool look i watched about half of it and i have that's a sad thing to say but um, it had a great look yeah yeah. i think they did a great job with that i don't know what they shot that on but it looks old i think it's 35 35 yeah there were shots in this movie though of uh tom noonan Mm mm-hmm where you made him look freakishly tall. He's quite tall. Really? Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, yeah. nine feet tall. Yeah. <laughs> he's a tall guy. Yeah. yeah. I thought it might have been, like, smoking mirrors. Um, there might be a little bit of that, but he's definitely a tall guy. I think yeah. it's a scene where he opens the door. Where he that one, walk. he that one he probably looks. He might have been on an Apple box on that show. <laughs> yeah. You've always packaged your films in a cool way, um, whether it be amazing poster art. I mean, it harkened back to the days of the 80s video store and innkeepers had amazing 
poster work, I guess, yeah. the dude designs yeah, who did that. Yeah. Amazing. And House of the Devil was put out on a limited edition VHS clamshell. And all. How yeah. important is that visual element to you to assist the movie in that way when you release it? I think, you know, the way you described it is correct. I think it's sadly, I don't know if it's sad, but sadly, not as much anymore. And not to me personally, but just it's changed. Everything's changed, right? So I grew up with like like I said, the box art was, it should have been better than the movie. That's how I, that's how I associated horror movies. The box art should be better than the movie. So I always felt a poster needs to be better than the movie. And, um, I felt like when there's a limited edition aspect to any part of the release, there's, um, an extra bit of quality or like you could miss it. And I grew up with like seven inches and making cassette takes on four tracks. And like that whole like promotional aspect of it is a big part of, it's the whole package to me. Cause it's not just the movie. It's a trailer for the movie and the poster for the movie and how you came to the movie and what your experience was when you were like primed to sit. It's why I think credit sequences are so important mm-hmm. because you have to like prime the audience to get in the right headspace to watch the movie. Cause if they're not in the right headspace, you're battling that the whole time. So that's very much a part of it. And that's a part of like the whole, let's say, history of cinema that I love is all that sort of stuff. And so it's hard for me not to want to indulge in that on all the projects. And I've been, you know, fortunate that I've worked with a lot of great companies that have done that MPI who did Dark Sky, who did the clamshell for House of Devil. Like that ended up being an unbelievably popular thing that I think like we thought it would be like kind of popular, but it was like I mean, I run into people all the time and they're like, do you have any more of those? And I'm like, no, that's like, that's like, that's so that's like a grail yeah. piece on eBay. Yeah. Now, right? um, but uh, I love all that stuff. And, and, and I think sadly, just because everything is sort of digital now, there's less of that. I got a music question, mm-hmm. uh, House of Devil. How much would it cost to license the fix and Greg Kin? Well, Greg Kin was Kin's super like, cool. It's Bay Area. That's cool, man. He was super cool. He smartly had a re-record. Oh, okay. So basically like when you, when you license a song, you've got a license to the artist and then to the publisher. And so he, had re-recorded the breakup song so that he owned like if you wanted the one from the album you had to go deal with I don't know whoever it was Warner <laughs> Brothers or whatever if you just wanted his re-record which sounded pretty similar you just had to deal with him uh-huh. and he was like oh you're a young dude making a movie like it's all good and so he he cut us a pretty good deal right. it wasn't free but it was a pretty good deal and then the fix that one was like the on the up and up the legit way and it was you know it was very expensive for us but not very expensive for what we got out yeah. of it so, you know, it was, I don't remember, so I could be wrong, but it was around 15 grand, something like that. We didn't have very much money on that movie. So that was like, dude, there's not, we don't have 15 grand. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, but it was like. But that's a really cool scene. Yeah. Though. yeah. The whole movie yeah. hinged on it. So it was like. Did you write that scene to that song? I did. Yeah. I had that song and then I had two backup songs, but we got that song. And I remember I lived in this little studio apartment in Silver Lake. I was editing the movie in the apartment in Silver Lake. It had no air conditioning. It was super hot in the summer when I was editing. And I, I had my windows open. And so editing that sequence was like, took, it took a while. So you're listening to like, over again. And it's like, and you're like constantly trying to get it right. And I remember it was like three in the morning. And I just remember hearing, what's that? And it was like, my neighbor was like shushing me from outside because I had been playing the fix song over and over again. What were the, uh, the runner ups? Um, one was send me an angel by real life. And I can't quite remember 
what the other one was. I think it was the Divinal song, but I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. But it was always like I wanted the fix. It was just like if we can't yeah. get it, if they come yeah. back and it's forty grand or something, then okay. But we got it. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it, it worked out well, and I, they, I think they were happy with it, and it ended up on the soundtrack, and it was it was great. Do you keep anything from your movies? I have some stuff. Yeah. Well, okay. So the chalice that they make her drink the blood out of, Go, like the goat head thing. I have that. That's awesome. Oh, wow. Amazing. I have some cyanide canisters from. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I have the photo of like you know father from that what else do I have I must have something from the innkeeper I have the deer head from the innkeepers is on my wall so yeah I keep stuff the chair from the sacrament I wanted to keep this sort of Adirondack chair we built and um, I don't know what happened to it it was always one of those things that was like no no we'll get it to you and it was like we're gonna send it and then it just never I, uh, I think the maybe the art director someone was gonna like drive it out because they were moving to LA and then it just never happened it's okay but it, it probably it, end up in some auction for yeah so 20 somewhere grand. someone's sitting someone's <laughs> in the backyard right now sitting <laughs> yeah. feeling very powerful <laughs> what you did to the Yankee peddler you kind of gave it another life as a, a horror tourist Actually, destination yeah we went I would recommend anyone go there but we went back there and premiered the movie across the street and um it was weird because we we stayed there when we made House of the Devil. That was just the inexpensive hotel we lived in, right. like the crew lived in. And like all this weird stuff was happening while we were making House of the Devil. House of the Devil was like 45 minutes away. Oh, so we okay. would drive out to the house and shoot and then we would come back and stay in this hotel. And it was just a weird hotel. And they had these weird stories added up. So after House of the Devil, I was like, well... I have an idea for a movie. I know exactly where we could shoot it. <laughs> and so it was very weird to go back to that place and make the movie sort of about the experience that you had with a lot of the crew. It was super surreal. It was yeah, a very strange experience. Movie. And then to go back a year later and then see the movie there, it was very weird. Yeah, I think they kept some of the wallpaper and, you know, some of the sort of quote unquote renovations we did. Yeah, it's a cool place. Like when you walk in there, it's like you're walking into the innkeepers. That's crazy. Yeah. And it's legit has a haunted history. It's yeah, that's what they say. I don't really believe in ghosts, but it's the closest I've ever come was staying there. Right. Did um, anything spooky happen? To all you? kinds of stuff all the time. Like what? Like, uh, well, one, the dude that worked there had a ghost hunting website. So like that was what, whatever. And the lore in the town was that okay. it was haunted. And so everyone believed it. You'd hear sounds in the hallway, like your, the light bulbs would burn out a lot. The TV would turn on by itself. The weirdest thing that happened was um, my phone rang and to call the rooms there, you have to call through the front desk. And I answered and there was no one on the other end. And allegedly no one called. So that was weird. And that gets chalked up to like, it's an old building. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I don't really know how that works. But, uh, but I, I would say that like, there's a strange vibe there. And the one thing that I remember from House of the Devil that I remembered when we got back for the innkeepers that is the strangest part is that a lot of people, myself included, just had very vivid dreams there. And like it was a collective thing. And then the thing that really pushed it over the edge was when we made House of the Devil, Dee Wallace, who's a wonderful woman who happens to be very spiritual, was like, it's haunted. I'm talking to the spirits. She was like affirming it. And wow. so, and like, I don't know if I believe in any of this stuff, but like, I believe she does. And I, I say that I genuinely believe that. So I don't know. It was a weird time. So that's why I wrote a movie about it. So. Wow. Which is like sort of what inspired. I mean, D is this awesome. She's so great. But that's what inspired having the sort of the character. In the, the character in the innkeeper is just like a very unpleasant person, and D is the polar opposite of that. Right. But that's where I got the idea of like an actress that can talk to ghosts. You know, I was like, what an interesting thing. The difference is that like D is like super pleasant and really like open about it and really cool, and a, this really great actress and has like zero chip on her shoulder and is this wonderful like inviting woman and then I was like well but I need the character to be like unpleasant otherwise the movie doesn't like really quite work so, right, right, but, um, right but yeah that's kind of where the idea came from wow and you're a huge Tom Cruise fan did you get any I Top do. Gun uh, I got a Top Gun Tales I got a, yeah. 
I got a few. No, Kelly Miglos had some good stories. That's there. awesome. That's yeah. Funny. What are some horror movies that have come out recently that you haven't worked on that have blown you away? A blown away is a bold statement. I thought Hereditary was very good. Mm. Yeah. I liked The Witch. Um, I liked It Follows. You know, I haven't seen that much. It takes a lot for me to certainly be blown away, but it takes a lot for me to be really into something and not because I have some great, important taste or anything. It's just, I think what I look for in movies and especially in horror movies is like I said this before, but like the cinema in them and what we got for a while is a lot of movies that are very effective but they're like you know in the same South Pasadena house with the same kind of people with the same kind of haircuts with the same kind of laptops and they're super effective but they don't do for me what like the movies I grew up with or the movies that I love from like the movie like Don't Look Now or something like that where I'm like this is something else and so you don't get as much of that anymore mostly because A horror movies got so popular and so successful that um, there, there's trends that you kind of have to stick with if you're thinking of it like from a business plan. Sure. And so, you know, I think the new Suspiria looks compelling. I think yeah. the trailer for that looks pretty yeah, good. I think it's great. a good director, yeah, yeah. so that seems cool. I'm really fascinated that it's another Italian making that original movie. Yeah, it is you interesting. Know. And it has, <laughs> it, I, some of the footage in the trailer has like, I don't know how to describe it, but an Italian, yes. there's something there. There's something like the way that the shots are composed and everything. I'm like, hmm, this this feels... Right. Probably most of the movies that people like. The Nun. The Nun looks good. That does look good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thaisa Farmiga is in that, who was in My Western, is awesome. So I'm excited for her. But that, that to your point, that's that's a sort of old-fashioned nut. So it, to me, it cinematically should at least conjure up, no pun intended, um, <laughs> the, the sort of what the atmosphere that I sort of like from horror movies. Yeah. So you're looking for yeah. ambiance atmosphere that's not vanilla in the sense that it's just seen something. it a thousand times. You know, it's, it's, yeah, it's something. I mean, it's a visual art form, you know? And so for me, like, like possession with Sam Neill is as cool as it gets because I'm like, what is this movie? Where right. am I? What right. is happening? <laughs> right. um, Black Moon is great. Like yep. these movies, like you know, stuff that there's just like, well, there's a there's a cinema to it that and a, a language from the from the camera that it's just not it's not the current vibe in American filmmaking. So right. and maybe that's fine, but like for me, I'm lacking that a little bit. Like I still will watch like a Godard movie and be like, this is great, or right. Boonwell movie and be like, this is great. You know, it's like I have filmstruck and I'm like, there's movies on Filmstruck that are like ah, I've always known I should watch this movie right, I've never right. been in the mood alright I'm finally in the mood and then you watch and you're like it's fucking great right. and you're like, <laughs> yeah. that's why it's criteria like right. everyone said it was great right. they're right it's actually great right. and so like I mostly watch films like that at this point because you know the new stuff is fun but it's it's rarely that it happens there's you know one, a couple a year that not necessarily horror movies, but a couple of movies a year that that sort of are like, whoa, that right. was pretty special. It's, it's interesting. I uh, I'll recommend The Innkeepers, right, mm -hmm. to friends. Hey, you gotta watch this movie. You gotta watch this movie. They'll watch it and they'll be pissed at me because they saw a different movie than I did. And I thought, man, that's yeah. great. You know, we're not gonna give away, give away any spoilers or anything, but it's like, did it happen? Is it real? Is yeah. it not? You know, it's like I never anticipated the end of that movie to be of as much debate as it is. Really? Yeah. So you had a clear, I mean, it was on purpose you had to a clear be vision as to what it's supposed to be. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not so ignorant. To know that I didn't leave it okay uh, I mean no it's absolutely like what you're saying you could get either out of it right but the debate about it was f like I was just sort of like well people really they dug in <laughs> and it's, that was always fascinating to me like I, I remember when we were traveling around with the movie in the Q&A's it was always like a very noticeable thing and I remember Graham Resnick the sound designer we would be around each other and I was like did you ever think that we'd be talking about these three ghosts as much as we are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, but that was the point. I mean, I, I'm, I'm grateful that that happened. That was kind of the guy like movies where you're right. kind of like conspiracy theorying them right. a little bit. Right. But, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, 
it's interesting that you say that because I, I did hear that. Well, you know, and I had a friend who who uh, teaches horror movie. I'm sorry, he teaches sociology through horror movies. Okay. And if, if I sat in this class a couple times and we watched some great movies. And if there's one thing I, I walked away with was there's always something going on. If there's a shot that's being held for five, 10 seconds, there's always something going mm-hmm. on. So my friends here, Rachel and Austin <laughs> are the ones that tell me, Hey, watch the innkeeper. You know, it was the first time I heard about yeah, this movie. <laughs> so I watched it. I turned around. I go, but did you guys see the end? The last uh-huh. the shot of the movie? I'm like, no. And I'm like, I swear, you know, I yeah. don't know why I caught that in the first viewing. Yeah. No, but 100% of people... I can't are, not see it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, we're not catching it either. Once we had that conversation. It, yeah, yeah, once you see but it, then you there was a big debate it. like amongst the people around us that were like, well, you can't see it. So like you should... I was like, but it's fine. If nobody sees right. it, it doesn't matter. Right. Right. Like, but if you do see it, then here we are as many years later as I am. But that was the point. It was right. like, I was like, I'm not stupid. I know you can barely see it. Right. Like, I spent the last eight months meticulously crafting this movie. I didn't just go like, yeah, whatever. That'll be good enough. Like, but it's, so it was a weird thing is when people don't see it, they think it's a mistake. And then when sometimes when people do see it, they think it's a mistake that it wasn't. An, and that's been a very interesting thing. So I don't know. But that, I mean, that's cool. And if anyone has no idea what we're talking about, I don't know. Watch the movie. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Watch the movie. Yeah. You yeah. got to see it. The garbage. That's my favorite thing I've That's ever a cool shot. Scene. No. She, and she yeah, because we've all done that. You pick it in the right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's my favorite thing I've it's ever great, shot. Yes, um, it's really perfect. And I, that's all credit to Sarah Paxton because I was like, okay, so you're going to take this out. It's going to be too heavy for you. Struggle with it. You're going to throw it in there. Hopefully, it's like one take. I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's all one shot. And I was like, hopefully, it'll get there and this stuff will leak out. It's never going to work, but try it. And then that's what happened. And it's so great. And that's totally credit to her performance and making it just fantastic. But that's, I mean, all this time when I was making these movies, I mean, like even that poster you talked about that you like for it, the tagline for it was like a ghost story for the minimum wage because the only I've never worked on a movie in my life. I've only made my own movies or had minimum wage jobs. So all of my jobs have been breaking down boxes and taking out trash or you know, selling sneakers in the mall or whatever. (laughs) Like that's all I've ever done or be like a bus boy. So it's, I have a very weird, like it's not really fair to call it blue cock. Cause I don't even know what collar it is, (laughs) but it's like, it's like $6 an hour or make movies. And so that just kind of comes in where I was like that the innkeepers was very much me on the tail end of having those jobs, kind of putting people who are stuck in a weird transitional spot in like life, career, whatever you want to call it, the minimum wage sort of job and like trying to sort out like how much ambition you should have, what it should be in and how it's just like weirdly confusing and an odd existential crisis that like <laughs> isn't particularly Cause compelling. Because she, she gets asked, does she want to be an actress? What do you want to be? She goes, oh, I just, I just work here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it was like, but that to me was about like, I hadn't thought of it. And then your whole world collapses when someone asks you something like yeah. that and you're like, how many years have I wasted not thinking of it? <laughs> <laughs> and that's a, that's a, that's an odd little, like it's not really like a quarter life crisis. I don't know what it is and it's not particularly compelling because it's not like that dramatic of a story to come out of like you work at the mall or wherever you work but there still is this sort of like wait I have to figure out how to get my life together but I haven't even considered what that would even mean and so therefore when you get involved in a ghost story you're like well maybe this could be something that I could find sort of a compelling meaning and or end up dead <laughs> I, I love at the, at the end to go back to the trash shot because then now mm-hmm. re- thinking about it in this context I feel like that shot is the metaphor for all of that feeling that you're just dragging the trash yeah 
and you don't know how you're going to get it into the bin uh, and you're just struggling with life and you don't even know what the answer is. And then there's a button at the end where she gets horribly embarrassed. Yeah. Twofold. One, that someone watched her do that. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then, you know, and there's the woman that she wants to impress. It's just a perfect button. Yeah. It's just an oddly confusing life to be living, but it's right. not particularly compelling to anyone other than that person. Like no one's weeping for the person that works at that job. Right. Like it's just not that bad of a life. Yeah. But it's, it's also not particularly compelling of a life either. And so it's a transitional thing. And that's what I looked at, whether that transition is a year, whether it's six months, whether it's six years, whatever, it's a transitional thing in life to have a sort of part-time but you're there almost 40 hours job right. and, you know, trying to s sort that out. And I always, I thought of like, you know, I always looked at the movie as like the ghost story is sort of a transitioning thing as well, as far as whatever. So yeah. it was always like this person dealing with that. So I don't know how much people pay attention to that because a lot of times people are just watching the movie because I don't know, scary things happen or Sarah Paxton's funny and whatnot, or Pat <laughs> Healy's great. But that was always the sort of intent behind the movie was to sort of have that kind of, that was sort of the atmosphere I was going for. And then it was sort of camouflaged in a ghost story. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that's why you feel for her so much towards the end you just feel for her what she went through what would they both went through yeah it's yeah. hopefully relatable in a sort of clumsy kind of way yeah totally. i've sort of clumsily stumbled through whatever life ideas i may have <laughs> and try to figure out which ones work and which ones don't work and that's those are typically the kind of care i typically write like i would say i write kind of stupid characters i don't mean stupid pejoratively i just write people who are like not they didn't start out equipped to figure out how to do everything right and they're kind of fumbling their way through figuring it out. And I think putting that in a genre movie is really interesting because a lot of times in genre movies, the people are like professional genre movie people in the movies. And so they have some character arc story and it's like checks all the boxes, but they really handle being in a horror movie pretty well. And I've always thought like, well, whether it's a horror movie or even a Western, like I just want to put a bunch of sort of like people who don't know how to do this in there and see them figure out how to do it. Because that might just be the way I look at the world. Maybe that goes to what you were saying earlier about part of my style is is... I think part of that is me figuring out it as I go. Next project. Do you think it'll be a horror movie? I said I was going to take a break. And so after the sacrament, which wore me out because it was, it was hard and it was just, it was just yeah. really dark. And I had made the Incubus, which was a fun movie. It was like a fun, it was almost like, I mean, it was Haunted Mansion inspired. Mm. I say that because of all your Haunted Mansion stuff for decorations, but it was also sort of Charles Dickens inspired. And so that I wanted to go this complete opposite direction. And I wanted to go into the, the realm of horror that like even horror fans are like, dude, <laughs> it's too dark because yeah. I think there's something really interesting about the escapism of violence in movies and it's really compelling and it's it's cathartic and it's it's there's style and it, there's something really interesting about it and then there's something that really changes when it's real violence and it doesn't have any of those feelings anymore mm -hmm. and people who are diehard horror fans are I see the most of that like weird non-overlap in it where it's like they have no interest in anything actually violent but unbelievable amounts of interest in things that are incredibly violent so I was like well it's, it's fake things and so to me I was just like well I want to make a really confronting horror movie because I just made a very soft horror movie I made like my sort of almost PG type horror movie and I wanted to make something very confronting to see if I could if I could make violence even for the people who cheer when they see people's heads get cut off kind of shift in their seats and be like and and I can say that from traveling with Sacrament like we got a lot of walkouts in that movie towards the end because it just it gets darker and darker yeah. and darker. I mean, even shooting some of it was like, oof. Um, but I was always trying to make it really confrontational to be like, no, this is this is the real thing. And so, like, it's all fun and games until it's like, this is the real thing. And then it's not so fun anymore. So the coming off that, I didn't want to do that again because that was just that wore me out. So I wanted to make something traditionally cinematic, which is why I wanted to make Western. And so I wanted to make kind of an odd, quirky sort of spaghetti Western my 
with my sort of spin on it. And I just wanted to take a break from horror movies. So I did. Then I started doing some TV because I never tried that before. And I didn't mm-hmm. think I would like it. And I actually really do like it. So I've been doing episodic TV for a while, which is good because it's a really great way for me to practice craft because it's not your script, it's not your show. You're really just helping them make their show. You learn a lot and you get to practice like, ah, I can do that techno crane shot that I have in my back pocket for later. I can do it on this show. So when I do it on the next thing. So I've been kind of, I have a movie that I'm pretty into that I think you would all be into. Maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't happen. It seems more likely that it would than it wouldn't. It is horror. But then I have some other things. I have a TV series of my own that is not horror, but I think you would like it all the same. And so it'll either maybe be one of those things next or neither. And then I'll have to come up with something else. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I got to bring up The Exorcist Mm -hmm. TV show. Yeah. My favorite TV show horror in the last, I don't know, 10 years. Yeah, it was a fun show. It was great, man. Especially you get to season two, episode three, directed by Ty West. Yeah. My friend, you win the award for the best way to kill a bunch of demons. <laughs> that opening sequence yeah, is yeah. insane. I'm surprised you guys got away with it on TV. Yeah, it was pretty outrageous. It was a fun. That was a fun. That was a fun show to do. That cast is great. Like they were the. the that's one of the most fun group of people I've gotten to work. With. So you you watched season one, right? I did. Or, like I got a call. You answered in the Exorcist, and I crammed. And so I just I watched all of season one in like two days. Was your mind I, blown by by episode five? I don't have any recollection reveal? of what happens per episode. Okay, this so. is a big reveal as to you know. Oh sure, yeah, 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 yeah. I dug it. I thought it was I thought it was a cool show. It was a good way. Jeremy, who created this show yeah. for TV, like it was a clever way to do it, and it's a cool aesthetic. And I think um, they carried it well, smartly into season two. Yeah, that's great. Especially the episode he directed has a really cool story to it. The episode has has a lot to do with the misdirection with the girl. Yeah, very much. Yeah, the girl's yeah. possessed. Yeah, and you, and then you turn out that it's whoa. Yeah. What's, what's, what's really fun about doing TV is you you could get a script and then it's like I did this. Wayward Pines up in Vancouver where we shot the Exorcist mm-hmm. also and it's sort of like you get the script and you just have to you have very little time to figure out how the hell you're going to do it that's great practice yeah. like it's it's a great way to like cut out all the like the fat in the way you've been thinking about doing it before so I feel like in the last year and a half that I've been doing TV like I've learned so much because I've done like eight TV shows and they're like an hour long so it's not really any different than making a movie it's just faster but that's like making eight movies in two years so and I've written like a crazy amount in the last two years so it's just been a very productive two years of like building up to what is hopefully like a sort of snowball rolling of like where did all this stuff come from and <laughs> right. it's like I've sort of been hibernating doing it it's been working quite hard to do it so hopefully it pays off but um, Great. yeah it's just been a good learning i just did this netflix show that's kind of a genre show called chambers that was fun too and so um comes out next year yeah, yeah there's a lot of great tv out right now i love a uh, castle rock man yeah it's pretty yes. cool i haven't started yeah. watching it yet, watch it yet. yeah I, I love stephen king you know so yeah i, I won't tell you nothing about it i got a couple myself we'll share them afterwards <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's fun tv's fun because it's um for me like it gets called slow burn and all that sort of stuff it's like uh there's a different attention span for tv with audiences, it seems, than there is with movies. So to me, I have two TV series that I've been sort of working on uh, of my own, and it's it's great because it's it's long form. And so no one's really going to say it's slow burn because like they want it to go on forever. And so right. like the, the more the merrier. So it's been really fun to me because it's like, all right, well, like, yeah, there's the plot, but then it's like the bulk of it is just character development stuff. Like if I made a studio movie, they would cut the trash scene out of the innkeepers <laughs> because it's just right. not... It's not moving the ghost part along, and that's right. not what the marketplace is looking for in a studio movie. In a TV show, they are. So it's. I feel, hopefully, I'm correct, that I feel uniquely 
perhaps like well suited for a TV series. So we'll see. I mean, we'll see. It's it's been quite a lot of work writing a TV series, but but I'm optimistic. That's awesome, man. We're looking forward to it. Yeah, I think man. you guys would dig it. Can if you it, give if us it a quick out. premise? No. Nice try, though. That was a good try. I don't want to jinx it. No, no, you don't want to keep your idea. Yeah. No, I mean, I'll tell you afterwards. I just don't want to jinx it because it's the likelihood of getting anything made is almost zero. But like I'm further along than I thought. You know, you keep moving one step further and you're like, can't believe we made it this far. (laughs) Usually there's a point where you're like, and then like House of the Devil, for instance, was like, we're going to make this movie. Didn't. And then three years later, it's like, want to make House of the Devil? And you're like, what? And then (laughs) then it happens and then it becomes a defining movie for me. So I now am very just sort of like, let's see how far it gets. And then if all of a sudden it gets done, I'll be like, can you believe that happened? Right. (laughs) It's a good way to be. It's almost like planting seeds or something. Yeah. And then waiting around for it to grow. And then you got to kind of, I've learned a lot that like, if you put all your eggs in a basket of things, something's going to happen. It rarely does happen. I realize because I'm writing a movie now, it's the 20th script I've written. And so like, I've made a decent amount of movies for someone my age or whatever but like i am made 20 so there's a lot of scripts sitting on a shelf the innkeepers is a script that i wrote because i wrote another movie that was going to happen and then it, it was supposed to happen and it didn't happen and out of frustration i wrote the innkeepers because i was like i know where we can shoot it i know exactly how to do it i know whatever everyone we can put everyone together and we can make it for cheaper than house of the devil boom i wouldn't have done that if the other movie that everyone said was going to happen it didn't happen and yep. so mm-hmm. that one didn't happen and then the innkeeper scripts comes out of that. And so every movie I've made has come out of some other movie failing. So it's just part of it. You know, it's like you, you go, I'm going to make this. And then you're like, it didn't. I made something else instead. So you just kind of, to use a Disney reference for your, uh, your album, <laughs> it is Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. <laughs> Do you still play music? Ooh. Not so much. I mean, I still have a guitar in my room and things like that. And I mess around with it, but um, not so much anymore. I, I'm very involved in the music and the sound design for my movies, probably to a degree that drives everybody crazy. But I, I have a very, like, I kind of edit to music that hasn't been created because I have an idea of what it would be. And I, I know it want to do this and I'm cutting on beats and things like that. So I still think that way, but I, I haven't been playing as every couple, maybe years. I have a friend. It's like, we should start doing it. And then we don't. And so like that <laughs> kind of stuff happens. But yeah, no, not as much anymore. But the guitar stares at me when I come home just with, <laughs> dust, with sad dust on it sometimes. I'm curious how you got involved in uh, working on Joe Swanberg movies as an actor. Well, Joe Swanberg and I had our first, The Roost and his first feature, Kissing on the Mouth, were at South by Southwest in 2005. And we were sort of like kindred spirits in that he was, uh, we were about the same age. He was some dude from Chicago and I was some dude from near Philadelphia and we had made some movies and probably thought no one would ever see him and somehow we ended up in Austin, Texas showing our movies and somehow people kind of dug them and um, we were we, the movies couldn't be less alike but it was the same sort of path I suppose sure, yeah, yeah. and I really liked him he was a good guy like I didn't know any filmmakers even though I went to film school you don't, I didn't know anybody and I made that movie completely by myself with people and so to be at South By I was like well, look at all these other people like me they're doing and there's some people there that are like bigger people and people that you're like, well, they had a lot of money. But to see someone like Joe, who's just a dude in Chicago with a camera, I was like, ah, you're me, but doing something different. And so we got along. And the next year I went back to South by just to hang out because I had such a great experience. And he had another movie there and it (laughs) drove me insane (laughs) because I was like, it it, it, like all of the competitive nature. I went, oh my God, I'm lazy. I'm like, I haven't done anything. This dude made a whole other movie. And so that really motivated me to be like, I need to do more, which I'm forever grateful for that. And so we became friends because we would just, we made a lot of movies at the same time and so we would be at different film festivals all over the country and like you'd be at some film festival in wisconsin and you'd be like oh there's that dude from chicago and then right. you get go oh, that's joe and then you get to know him you meet a lot of people that way and you go well i don't know what microphone to use if i'm gonna shoot this movie and you call someone like that or you call duplass brother you call whoever you met and they give you advice and everybody was helpful hey could you have an afternoon to like hold the boom 
yeah, okay, cool. And so I had no plans to ever act in anything. Joe was making a movie and it fell apart. It was actually when I was doing post-production House of the Devil. I was in New York City doing post-production House of the Devil. We had run out of money, everything, and I had no place to live because we had run. The budget was gone, but the movie wasn't done. And I wasn't going to leave New York. So I was sleeping on couches, just ruining all my friendships. And, <laughs> and Joe was doing the same thing. And so, wow. and his movie sort of that he was making didn't pan out. So he was making like version B of the movie because Joe improvises movies. And then version B of the movie, I was like holding the boom and helping out. And then it, it just wasn't so great. And so then he came up with version C. And because everyone else was pretty much gone and I was the only one left. I ended up being in version C of the movie. And plus we just known each other. And then all of a sudden about a year or so later than that, he made this movie Drinking Buddies and he's like, will you come out and play this yeah. part? And I was like, all right. Yeah. All right. And then, <laughs> I mean, off to the races, he went after that. So, but yeah, Joe's the best. Yeah, it's funny because Rachel and I saw Drinking Buddies, which you mm -hmm. loved. It's such a good movie. Yeah, it's a great movie. And then you just pop up like, you know, two thirds of the way through. Like, wait a minute, wait, Ty <laughs> yeah. that, is that Ty West? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it was that. And then that right really after funny. that, Adam Wingard made your next and he kind of put all of us in there. And then I sort of, that group, because we'd all, Amy Simons and Joe and all, like, and we were all making movies for nothing and seeing each other around the country just hawking our wares. And so then the sacrament, I was like, I know all the people that will come do this movie and who will be down for what we're doing. And if we get into a pinch, can improvise their way out of it. And they're mm -hmm. also filmmakers. So if, if I need them to understand what we're doing or Joe needs to shoot some of it, it was a really unique kind of movie to make. And it was, it was great because I got to put every single person I wanted in the movie. It was really fun. It's great. It reminds me of like the community of the 70s indie mm -hmm. 70s and early 80s yeah. you know the Sam Raimi and yeah you know and all the horror guys and everything. I actually because you mentioned I mean it had an element of that meaning like I mean it was a lot of us sleeping on floors and couches together which is like sort of romanticized now at the time it was just really unpleasant because it was right. just like it, we were wherever city you were in you were just like beaten you were just like, oh, but like now I look back on it and it's like, it's like you described other oh, seven and it's like, yeah, it was, was kind of like that. Um, but all those people said they were going to do something and then they did it. They said they were going to make a movie and then they did. And that's the minority of the movie business. Most yeah. people say they're going to make a movie, not make it. And fair enough, it's really hard. You could count on those people. And so that's sort right. of why I think we always stuck around each other. It's like if, if I said I would come help them, I would come help them. If they said they would come help me, they would come help yeah, me. That's great. Um, and then, but you mentioned Sam Raimi and I actually got to work with Sam Raimi recently. Sam Raimi was probably one of the the most important people for me, like being like a 15 year old kid in a basement in Wilmington, Delaware, wanting to make movies where no one knows what the hell I'm talking about. It's like, yeah, you want to make Raiders of the Lost Ark. You want to make Jaws. You want to make whatever. But who knows how to do that? Where would you even begin to know how to do that if you didn't like grow up in a Hollywood family? Like, I have no idea. But you could watch Evil Dead or you could watch like Bad Taste, Peter Jackson's first movie. Yeah. And I was like, those are their friends. That's just a cabin or that's cameras just on a car. That's how they got that shot. <laughs> right. And you could see how they did it. Yeah. And it's like, oh, well, and that was the same way with music for me. I would see a band. I was like, they're not great, but they're doing it. I'm not even doing it. I could try to do it. And then you go like, well, I could, let me see if I could do better than that. You know, that's subjective, mm -hmm. but like, sure, yeah. and, and I, so I would look at Sam Raimi and I would go like, He's some nitro dude that raised money through like family, friends and whatever and made this movie in this cabin. And like, I don't know if I can make a movie as good as that, but there's no reason I couldn't at very least try to do that. Whereas like, I have no idea how to make Jaws. It seems unbelievably <laughs> difficult with right. unbelievable amounts of things that I don't have or wouldn't even know where to begin. All I have to do is find like a house or all I have to do is find a barn. Okay, right. well, I could find a barn. Like I could get someone to tolerate me messing around in their barn <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like, all right, I got to get a camera. Like, okay, well, and I looked at what Sam Raimi was doing and it was like, he was just very talented in the way he was making the movie. 
and built a career off that by being like, look, I have something to offer despite not having any resources. So mm-hmm. that was incredibly valuable to me as someone who had n- not only no resources, but no real like direction of how to even begin because it's like it's different now because everyone has a camera on their phones and everyone's right. used to youtube and everyone has iMovie. it's like i was probably the last generation where it's like you have no idea how to make a movie like it's not like they, they don't teach you that in school and it's not like if you said you wanted to do that i can tell you they tell you not to want to do that because they're like that's something someone else does somewhere else like i don't no one really knows and it's just ignorance and fair enough like like i don't blame anybody how would they know you know and i just thought like i was fortunate that it was like the 90s or the indie boom and i was like okay i just looked at what sam Raimi did and was like look i don't know if i can do it as well as him but i could at least try it and so that would get me to like go out and try to do it and i got to work with sam Raimi recently and it was a very interesting thing because it very i don't know if he knows this or if it would necessarily matter and it's a little heavy to say it but we did a project together when i left the room of was deciding to do that it was like the most profound experience and i had met him once before and he's the nicest guy in the world he's great he's super gracious nice very nice to me but to like partner with him on a project i could see like a straight line from when i was like 15 wanting to make movies to like i did it like I, I, <laughs> and it's like i had made a bunch of movies wow. before that this was not long ago so yeah, i had made yeah. a bunch of movies and you could make an argument no you already did it but it was like for me personally there was no way for like the voices in my head to like talk me out of the fact that like you said you wanted to try to do this and now you're partnered with the dude <laughs> that made you think you could try it. Yeah. Like you're done. New goals now. Right. right. <laughs> and, amazing. And shut up. Like, don't complain about anything ever again. And it like, it was, it was really like, it was a, a very much like leaving the office in New York city and going, I got someone to, to give me money to make a movie. The Sam Raimi experience was the same thing where it was like, Oh, like some lifetime of stuff just like evaporated from my shoulders or whatever I was trying wow. to do. Yeah. And it was just sort of like, I'm very fortunate to have had that experience. And so like, I'm sure everyone can have their own version of that, but like to be able to be in an irrelevant place and look at a dude in Michigan, making a movie in the woods, build a giant career and then be part of that person. And that person be a great, gracious, generous, awesome person. I was very fortunate for that. So he's great. He's the best dude. Thank you so much, man. Thanks. Yeah. For that was awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Seriously. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> the master is home quickly. You must go. What are you waiting for? Get out of here. I can't be seen with you. He hasn't eaten. Quick, quick, take take the back stairwell. I'll storm as long as I can. Go, go now, go! That was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 22. Special thanks to our guest, Ty West. You can find his films on Blu-ray, DVD, and streaming services. See them all. The Roost, Triggerman, House of the Devil, The Innkeeper, Sacrament in a Valley of Violence. His movies mean everything to us and are done with such style and love. They're true celebrations of the best of the best of the genre. If you like what you hear, head to iTunes, rate and write a review of the show. It helps continue to bring you amazing guests and horror insanity. Trev for the Boo Crew saying, see you on the other side. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Tales from the Boo. The Boo Crew is Tim Timebomb, Leone D'Antonio, Lauren and Trevor Shand, Austin Wilkin, and Rachel Tejada. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation. It's time for this uh, boogeyman to boogie.